you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. It's June 2014. We're in Casa Bucata, close to the Pacific Ocean, and it couldn't be better. Rick, this is a great place, great weather. You know, after the winter we've had in Michigan, I deserve this little trip to California. Well, you, the reason that you're here is because we're doing an EMA course down at the uh, Marina Marriott. You don't have to tell them that, Rick. Uh, well, just in case they didn't know. Okay. And then we drove up to try to beat the extraordinary traffic today. But it's a nice day, and I've got lots of visitors. Dan, My son Dan is taking pictures across the room here. Yes. His wife is here. His, his two children are here. Logan, who is now 28 days old. Yep. And Brooke, who is three years old. And... Uh, Dan's in-laws, the uh, the Duns. So we got six visitors, but only two of them are little little people. Yes, I understand that. And Rick, let me just tell you, the change in you over the last uh, year and a half about being a grandfather, truly astounding. It's sickening. It's yeah, sickening. What I, the mean, I mean, just to ask your own kids, you didn't care that much about them, but to these grandchildren, oh my God. We outsourced the raising of our... I've oh, you you outsourced it. Maria, Maria yeah. <laughs> took care of them. In any case... You want to get started here? We should probably do that. So, let's do a mailbag. Oh, I got to tell you, before we get too far into this, yeah. uh, Greg has, has a resolving case of pertussis. He may, in fact, periodically be uh, coughing in jags, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have your TB test checked? I haven't had <laughs> No, I have not had my TB Don't, don't face the other way when you're talking to me, if, <laughs> if you don't mind, you know? Okay. Good idea. All right, let's hear from John Ventura. All right. John Ventura writes, Rick and Greg, my group is currently reviewing our nursing protocols, and we're debating the utility of one that has our nurses bring us the chart for a young woman with no comorbidities complaining of typical UTI symptoms. This protocol allows the physician to prescribe antibiotics and peridium based on nursing history without us seeing the patient. We don't bill the patient for this visit, but it gets the patient seen sooner. I can't find anything either in EMA archives or in a literature search describing whether or not this is a good idea. Do you have any thoughts on this issue? We have a lot of thoughts on this issue. (laughs) This is a bad idea. That's why there's nothing in the EMA database about this, because when we responded to John, the first thing was number one is, this patient has not gotten a medical screening examination per uh, EMTALA. Now, as you know, medical staff bylaws can be amended to allow nurses to do uh, medical screening exams. Virtually no hospital has the balls to do that. So uh, I'm sure there are a few out there, but by and large, that's not the case. And so a physician has to do a medical screening exam. This, as described here by John, totally precludes a medical screening exam. They're being handed the chart by a nurse, a nurse who is not a nurse practitioner or a PA. And so I don't think that this this is a go in any way, shape or form. Yeah, and by the way, nothing here says that this nurse is checked to see if there's signs of pyelonephritis, uh, whether there's any other findings on the patient at this time. I'm not, 
I'm not sure that this really meets the criteria of excellent medical care at this moment in time. Well, it will get the people out of the department sooner. That's yes, for sure, it, it definitely will. And they'll, they'll move right from the department to their attorneys if uh, they know anything about this. Now, I'm sure that 99% of the time they're right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's not the issue, only issue involved. Proper screening is important. There are things that are picked up through examination. Is this the first time they've had an infection? Is this the fifth time they've had an infection? Do we have anything else going on here? Uh, John, you tell us that you're not billing for seeing the patients. I have no idea why you would have a policy to treat human beings except a certain amount of liability, which will come to you, I promise you, whether you've seen them or not, and yet make no money for it. Trading, that's trading risk for no money. That doesn't sound like good sense to me, Rick. Well, you know, patients have the option of going to urgent care centers or minute clinics at the CVS or Walmart or something to that effect. Now, I acknowledge they're not open all the time. And they are, um, you know, I think many times when a person comes to the emergency department, they want to see uh, a doctor or at least somebody who is has the glow of the emergency department and the hospital behind them, which it gives this implied credibility that these people are empowered to do what they're doing and they're good at it. So I think that, you know, when somebody comes to the ER, I think that they're expecting to see a doctor. If they don't see a doctor, they're going to expect to see a nurse practitioner. If they don't see a nurse practitioner, they're going to see a PA. As identified as such, you got to, you know, you have to tell you who you are. If you're a RN without any additional initials behind your name, this is a tricky business because there is this issue about distinguishing a vaginitis from a UTI. Correct. So you really have to basically have a protocol that asks about discharge, burning, uh, you know, around the uh, introitus and those kinds of things to help make the differentiation. And in studies that have looked at this, a surprising proportion of women do have vaginitis as a problem, particularly, you know, college-age women. So I think that this is risky from a number of, um, of perspectives. But, John, that's just our opinion. Yeah, we know <laughs> nothing. We, we know, know. But we I, know nothing. You know, but John disagreed. I mean, agreed, pardon me, that when we talked about the entire, I said, to tell you the truth, I never even thought of that. And I think that is by far the overriding issue in this case is that this is not a authorized medical screening examination. And I don't blame them for wanting to facilitate the care of the more minor cases. But, you know, in that case, why don't you just have the nurse order the ankle x-ray and if negative, just give them an A-strap and send them out. And, you know, there's ad nauseum where this can go. Yes. And well, and, and the other thing, John, within a few minutes, you should get a knock on your door from the federal government. Good luck with that. Thank you very no, much. I, listen, we appreciate your writing and uh, we, you know, we're just pulling your leg a little bit. And listen, we are also looking for more comments and cases and situations and policy issues. Not that we have any expertise in this, but we are more than willing to render an opinion yep, at any time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Facts never got in the way. So case number one is, and I, I want to acknowledge that these cases, some of these cases are from, oh, come on, help me now. You know, the the really smart uh, MDJD who has this program that uh, the ERs are signing up for to 
Come on, you know his name. Dan Sullivan. Yeah, Dan Sullivan. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. We know, it's starting to lose it. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, we understand that. It. Yeah, right. I contacted Dan. He said, feel free to talk about his cases. And I told him we would acknowledge the excellent source. Right. So the first one is a 53-year-old female presenting to the ED at 5.30 in the morning complaining of sudden pain in her left axilla. Now, that's a, that's a sudden is the word. I don't like there. Uh, initial assessment revealed elevated blood pressure and heart rate, a low-grade fever, and a white count of 17,000 with the left shift. No mass was palpable in the left axilla. Her chest x-ray and, of course, CT were normal. After an undocumented curbside consult, the attending physician documented his decision not to start the patient on antibiotics. He diagnosed left arm strain. You always need a diagnosis, whether it's plausible or not. And discharged the patient with pain medication or vital signs that discharge were not documented. Why don't we take this as we go along? As sitting here, having heard it at this moment in time, I think it's odd that a non-intoxicated woman shows up at 5.30 in the morning, which is strange to me, and says, I've got this sudden pain in the axilla. Now, we, we know that someone did a white blood count and it was uh, elevated, low-grade fever, that sort of thing. Why in the world would you make a diagnosis of strain without history of something that would cause a strain in a young woman? Was she throwing cement blocks over a wall? What happened here? The, the other thing is strain ought to be something which you can tell on physical examination with uh, opposing movements in certain directions, palpating the muscle, that sort of thing, we ought to pick up strain in the physical examination and not just throw it out as a diagnosis. Wastebasket diagnosis. Wastebasket. You know, it's a strain. How do we know that? Well, you have to put down something on the diagnosis, and so you make something up uh, that is minimally plausible in this case. Stomach flu. Well, that would have been good, too. That would have been good, too, in this case. Go anyway, on. moving on. The patient returned to the ED the next morning, complaining of severe pain, fever, chills, vomiting, and shortness of breath. She had 103.3 fever, elevated heart rate and respiratory rate, decreased O2 sat, and her white count was 14,000. What's getting better? Oh, it got better, yeah, Rick. exactly. Well, you know, she came back the next morning. She's obviously an emergency department abuser. Abuser. Weren't She's you here yesterday? Abuser. Yes, exactly. She was started on antibiotics, and an ultrasound revealed a small fluid collection in the left axilla. Going further, a stat surgical consultation was ordered, but two hours passed before the patient was seen by the consulting surgeon. You might want to have something about that. Yeah. She was admitted with a diagnosis of sepsis and possible left axilla abscess with plans to rule out necrotizing fasciitis. She was taken to the OR for exploration of the left axilla mass, which revealed edematous conglomerated lymph nodes and venous congestion. Cultures confirmed group A strep. After an arrest and CPR in the OR, things are not going well. No. The patient was transferred to the ICU. She died the next day following multi-organ failure, hypotension, and hypoxia. Her cause of death, streptococcal toxemia, uh, toxic shock. And the case settlement is surprisingly small, $1.5 million, which... uh, and, and I think we're going to review a number of these cases. I'm surprised at the magnitude of these settlements. I guess we're, uh, I was curious as to where they were. My, my, you know, you've commented on the first paragraph there, you know, the yeah. incongruity between the physical presentation and the, uh, the diagnosis. Right, the supposed diagnosis. Uh, and I wanted to comment on 
the importance of discharge vital signs. And I don't know how long this lady was in the emergency department. She was long enough there to get a CT and a chest X-ray and a CBC and this, that, and the other thing. So I envisioned it be several hours. And I can't tell you how important I think discharge uh, vital signs are. And somebody who comes in where they're not normal. I mean, which way are they going? Are they going up? Get it down? Are they, stay, are they staying the same? And I think that um, what we're going to quote a paper uh, a little bit later that looked at discharge vital signs and and um, errors in um, patient care, and we'll see how often they are, are the kind of the tip off. You know, I can't believe that we actually have a stat surgical consult. Two hours is a fair distance in time. This is a woman who... 103.3 fever. 103.3, although you can't go by the actual height of the fever, but she does have abnormal vital signs. She's worse. I can't believe we don't have a physical exam that says she's puffy, she's got tenderness, she's got this or that. What you know is you have a, a surgical case on your hands. There's nothing here that looks anything but surgical. Fluid collection going downhill, uh, tachycardic. I hope they started multiple drugs and was on her way to the operating room because this this is a bad case. I will say in my career, I have seen a young woman go from absolutely stone-cold normal with normal vital signs who came in, thought she'd pulled her chest wall lifting baskets of uh, laundry Mm -hmm. within six hours she's tachycardic at 160 her blood pressure is going downhill the surgeons went in nothing else at that moment in time and started dissecting the muscles from the the chest wall she was saved but it went from nothing to damn near dead in six hours that's kind of typical Oh, progression. Oh, no. It frightens the hell out of me, Rick, because each one of us, if, if this lady, I, maybe I wouldn't have missed that one. Just like the ER doc, I would have said, you know, no abnormal vital signs, no fever, no history of nothing. And she has been lifting. It was her first or second day at a laundry lifting these big baskets. I might have made that diagnosis myself. Yeah, it's so easy to connect dots that are really not there in your head. Yes. And you uh, focus on the things that are consistent with the diagnosis that you'd like to make, and you ignore the other part of the information that's being presented to you. What's that called? Anchoring Uh, bias. Thank you very much. And we do this all the time. We pick and choose those factors which fit our view of the case. Although, you know, to be truthful we do that routinely i mean when somebody yeah. comes in and talks to us and they give us this and that and this and that and this and that we weigh each of the items and to determine you know their significance in terms of our developing a diagnostic approach to these cases and in any case it's easy to be a monday morning quarterback in these about mm, three years ago at mel's essentials course they had a big thing there where they had the lawyers and all of the the witnesses and and remember it well and i i think i get to participate in this was another case of musculoskeletal problem of somebody's shoulder that turned out to be the, the identical diagnosis here so these cases keep on coming up because i think that they're maybe more frequent than they had been in the past i i would say one thing if you're going to make a diagnosis of musculoskeletal pain 
on physical examination, there ought to be something musculoskeletal. I, I had a 38-year-old man who <laughs> one of the residents had diagnosed as muscle strain. What, what happened? Well, he was pulling physically his boat on a trailer up a hill to hook it back onto his truck. And that's when he got the pain in his shoulder and upper chest. There was no evidence that a 38-year-old guy who, by the way, had two family members who had early MIs in their life when that got looked at a little later. He never moved the shoulder. He never lifted it up, down. If you're going to call it musculoskeletal, I would think the musculoskeletal has to hurt. And well, none you, of that did. Yeah, and you need to have an exam. Yeah, an exam. What a concept. Documented that it's consistent with your diagnosis. All right, right, moving on. Next case. Rick, we've got a 30-year-old female presented to the ED with a history of severe bilateral lower abdominal pain with nausea, vomiting over the previous three days. Medical record demonstrated and documented a limited abdominal exam with findings of possible suprapubic pain and no other abdominal tenderness. There was no documentation of any abdominal rebound or tenderness in the kidney areas. No gynecologic exam was performed. Details, details. Are you, are you happy at Well, this it doesn't moment? sound, based on this case, that there's been uh, an adequate examination when, in fact, the chief complaint relates to abdominal pain. You see, I would say that she may have had the exam, but there are certain things when they roll in the door, if you don't say no guarding, no rebound, yeah, no specific, you've got to have pertinent negatives because three-day history of abdominal pain in an otherwise healthy younger person, this, is, this isn't an hour of pain, this is three days. Why wouldn't you think of the most common surgical diseases in a patient of that age and just say yes or no, I found them or I didn't? Have them jump up and down and see if their belly hurts. Some of those simple things we learned as medical students. Anyway, labs, uh, urinalysis, and blood cultures were uh, revealed possible UTI. White and red, <laughs> we're going to get there, Greg. Yeah, yeah. You're chopping it to yeah. bed. I know you are. Yeah, yeah. White and red blood cells in the urine and elevated white blood count with left shift was believed to be contaminated or suspected to be contaminated. An abdominal x-ray was negative. What's, what's an abdominal x-ray? I, I remember, remember abdominal that? x-rays, yes. And I think if they thought she had uh, distension and rebound and they thought she'd perforated an ulcer, it might be a useful test. But I think it's For pretty a, much been supplanted. A, a rectal foreign body. A rectal foreign <laughs> body, sure. Why not? The patient was diagnosed with a UTI, prescribed antibiotics, and discharged despite a 102.3 temperature and no resolution of her abdominal pain or a urology consult for possible kidney infection. So really, they let nobody know about this at that moment in time. Two, day la two days later, urine cultures returned no growth, confirming specimen contamination and invalidated the diagnosis of UTI. That same day, the patient was admitted with a ruptured appendix. So going back over the details of this case, we would first of all conclude that there was very poor documentation of a physical exam without giving all of the essential pertinent navigators that helps allow you to uh, send somebody out the door. Right. The other thing is that we talked about, I believe, 
you and I did, but I, I do so. <laughs> I have no idea who I talked to this about. This idea of asymptomatic bacteria, the idea that somebody would have what you're going to call a urine infection with a temp, which a fever here, and they have no urinary symptoms, and you happen to be trolling, and you find some white cells in the urine, and here's an adult who basically can tell you whether they have any urine symptoms at all and you choose to blame this and they don't say anything about the kidneys or flank pain or anything like that and you're grasping at straws when they're talking about a few white cells for crying out loud when somebody is this symptomatic you know no i i honestly believe that if you had a woman this age who had an active urinary tract infection there shouldn't be any subtlety to that urine well, yeah, a temperature, I don't think you have super pubic pain or either. And well, you can get a fever of 102 here. I think, again, we're grasping at a straw, something to nail this to, uh, to go along with making a diagnosis. Whether it fits everything or not is unimportant. The other thing is, two days later, uh, the growth was negative. I'm surprised, and, and that's the day that she was admitted with a ruptured appendix, why wouldn't you see a patient back? I can't believe the day before she was feeling better. She was fine. I mean, what was the arrangement made to see her back? Well, it's not documented. Maybe there was some arrangement. There may have been. You know, it might have been see your doctor, if not better. Yes. Which is the kiss of death. Kiss of death. Exactly. And uh, this this is a difficult case. and, And I think that if a plaintiff's attorney had this case, there's enough questions he could ask the doctor here, the lack of pertinent negatives, that sort of thing, that uh, could be a genuine problem for this case. This case settled for only $50,000. Well, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised that uh, somebody would take a $50,000 case, but given the fact that the experts like you guys char- probably charge 50000 you know. No, I mean, minimum, I, minimum. Yeah, right? I, I mean, th- this was just chump change. I did want to bring out the paper that I made reference to before. David Sklar's paper. Yes, yeah. Sklar in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. This was in June of 2007, way back in the Stone Ages. They looked at deaths within seven days of ED discharge. They looked at 387,000 visits, 117 deaths occurred when that, within that time frame. 50% were unexpected but related to the ED visit. 60% of these had a possible error. That was 35 patients. There were four recurring themes, according to the Sklar paper. Number one, a typical presentation of an unusual problem. Well, that sounds, you know, it's going to be hard. A typical presentation of an unusual problem? Well, you know, I think you and I can both acknowledge that many people would, you know, they're going to get that wrong. Exactly. Number two, chronic disease with decompensation. The COPD or the CHFR, um, maybe uh, probably, well, should have been admitted, but it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. And in chronic disease, for you, and they're going to, just by definition, have seen a doctor within a few days of dropping dead. Now... You're going to have to take each one of those cases apart and say, who really would have benefited by being brought into the hospital? I mean, every CHF patient you know is going to die at some point in time. Is Do you have to bring them in now? What are the criteria? So particularly with chronic decompensated patients, I think that's as much a philosophical question as it is a medical question. Who's going to take care of them? Is the family prepared to deal with what's going on? 
Lots of questions. But there's also the issue of can they be spiffed up and sent back home mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we've got the first two, atypical presentations of an unusual problem. Yep. That's called being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that's called being in the medicine business, right? Number two, chronic disease with decompensation. Number three is abnormal vital signs. Now, I have to acknowledge that tons and tons and tons of people go home with abnormal vital signs. But I believe that the physician needs to know what those signs are and feel comfortable that they're consistent with the diagnosis that is being made. So a kid's going to leave it with 103 fever. It came with 103 fever. He's going to leave with 103 fever. You're comfortable with the diagnosis, and so it's no big deal. A kid leaves with 103 fever. But there's this disconnect between what you think the diagnosis is and, uh, and vital signs that are not consistent with that diagnosis. And if you don't know what they are when when the patient leaves, you, you don't have the opportunity to say, whoops, maybe I ought to rethink this. So the third thing was abnormal vital signs. 29 of these 35 patients had these abnormal signs. Most had tachycardia. And last one, mental disability or psychiatric problems. And yep. you know, that that's, that is also such a trap easily to fall down. If a person has an established psychiatric diagnosis, that's the worst thing that they can have because we're going to focus on that to the ignoring of a lot of other kinds of routine illnesses. Well, there was a there was a very good paper done where what they set up was a group of patients with purely a straightforward medical symptoms. Was this paper in the emergency medical abstract? It was, sir, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I happen to recall It's a paper. wonderful paper. And what it said was, then they added one thing. Uh, they added a psychiatric disease as part of the history. And all of a sudden, the doctor's view of what this patient had or how intensively it would be worked up changed. Right. I recall that. that you know, they did less testing. They, they kind of shined them on. Less pain relief less testing, no clear follow-up programs. If you carry a diagnosis like schizophrenia. Manic going, depression. Manic depression. Whatever they call it. It's called bipolar. Bipolar these days. These days. I'm dating myself. Yes. It's, it's good. Somebody's dating you. And whenever you see a chronic psych problem, nobody's interested in the department. Would you like an IPPB treatment? I would uh, like that. Something like that. That'd be good. Remember that most people have no idea. No idea what, what IPPB is, right? Exactly. exactly. Dr. Bird invited the bird, you know, that little green machine. Yes, and, I remember the bird. The bird machine, and he made a fortune on that mm-hmm. machine. And ultimately, when they back went back and looked at what literature supported the use of the bird machine. There was none, was there? There was none. Yes. This guy lived in Palm Springs and made a fortune. But in well, any case, and he's the guy from which we get the phrase, well, give the patient the bird. And and uh, everybody understood oh, that in those days. He went a rim shot on that one. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. All right, case number three coming to you. 47-year-old male with a history of asthma presents to the ED complaining of shortness of breath and chest tightness since the prior day. Hmm, straightforward. Mm. The initial nursing documentation reports shortness of breath episodes consistent with asthma symptoms and a pulling pain in the chest with deep breaths. Okay. You know, I think I'm getting that right now, Rick. I think you've had it for a yeah, while, yeah. In the last half hour at least. They also referenced a recent history of a pulled calf muscle one week prior with bruising and swelling and a positive home inside. Well, uh, the alarm just went off. Yeah, you know. it, this but it's done now, right? The attending physician noted the patient was alert, fully oriented, and in no acute distress. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea why we use the phrase no acute distress. It means you're like you're allowed to have distress. It just can't be acute. Well, what does acute distress mean? Rick, we can only fight so many dragons at one time. People are going to say no acute distress, but you're right. 
it should say no, no distress. No chronic distress. You know, uh, I would like the phrase no distress, period, no distress. No acute distress. Come on. The patient also reported recent exposure to new cleaning products at work. Without scrolling further down in the electronic medical record, oh, I love this one, to review the nurse's note, the physician ordered no further studies, diagnosed the patient with asthma exacerbation, and discharged him with instructions to use his inhaler at home. My God. Hmm. The following day, the patient was found dead. That's not good. You know the patient you saw yesterday? Dead. Yeah, Exactly. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. What are you most, not supposed to find him? Yeah, well, I understand. Uh, uh, and what was the diagnosis? A massive bilateral pulmonary embolism. So here's a case where you're going, being led down the garden path. History of asthma, shortness of breath, you know, a little chest tightness, some discomfort on taking a deep breath. And then, oh, by the way, some calf issues. And uh, anyway, how much did this settle for? Yeah, three three hundred and fifteen thousand. Yeah, which yeah. actually not too bad. I don't think it, that's that that much. This guy's forty seven years old, and he's a dead guy now. Yeah, well, what about lost his wage, earning? Wages? His earning potential has gone way down. No, but I mean, this guy lost all these future wages and family to, to care for and all that other stuff. You know, yeah. I, I told you I think last month that there was an initiative cooking to uh, get on the ballot. We do things by initiative here. If you want the wackiest thing, if you get 504,000 people to sign a petition, you're on the ballot. Ballot, And so we're on the ballot now for a big battle. This is going to be a huge battle because the um, our cap of $250,000 pain and suffering, which was present since the mid-70s, is now going to be pegged to inflation, which will have this cap currently at somewhere around, I think, $1.2 million. Yes. So that will make it worthy enough for lawyers' attentions. And I, yeah, I did mention this last time, but anyway, that did pass. It is now going to be on the ballot. And I can just see the trial lawyers and the doctors just spending tons of money fighting this. Fighting this. Oh, no, it's going to go on and on, and it's not going to be a pretty fight. So do you have anything else to say about this? This case sounded pretty straightforward. I've got one thing to say. The doctor who doesn't read what the nurse said. You know, uh, my partner, Neil Little, said it best. He says, if you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. And it never looks good for two professionals to not be aware of each other's note. Are collaborating? Aren't you working together, doctor and nurse? Uh, Yes, collaboration. collaboration. Exactly. You know, when you ignore the nursing note, let me tell you the biggest problem with electronic medical records. Yeah, this, well, actually, this is probably four feet below, you know, in terms of scrolling. The problem is all this repetition and stuff that's reprinted and reprinted and reprinted to the point where how does the doctor know, unless he reads every word, what the new entry is? I think it's a very difficult situation. If I was a lawyer, I'd invent an electronic medical record. Oh, absolutely. Cutting and pasting would be great. You know, inability to acknowledge the uh, nursing notes because they're, where are they kind of thing. You know, I think it's worthwhile for a doc to say something in the dictation, nursing notes appreciated or nursing note observed, because you ought to at least show that you picked up on what they had to say. I don't know if I appreciate the note. No, no. What it no, what you're saying is nursing note acknowledged but unappreciated, but I gotta deal with it. And I understand that. That's perfect. Listen, some people would, would be offended by my comment. I, I think 
I think, the world of nurses. I mean, they save our butts all the time. Mm -hmm. They work really, really hard. Yes, and, yes, exactly. Honestly, they're, they, were, they work as equally as hard as the physicians in terms of physically, if you look at how much they work and, you know, all the physical things they do, pulling up patients and, you know, I, I think it's a really hard job. That's real work. It's absolutely I, I real it's work. Really hard. I think it's probably the hardest job in a hospital, bar none. In any case, time for case, case four. four. Yeah. The executor of the decedent's estate brought this medical malpractice and wrongful death action against the doctors and nurses responsible for the decedent when he went to the emergency department with chest pain. I mean, it's, it, it's a classic. The decedent arrived at the emergency department at approximately 4.30 p.m., 114. January 1st. January 1st. Of this? Oh, and that's 10 oh, years ago. Oh, 04. Okay. In the nursing triage note, timed 436, the first defendant nurse indicated that the decedent was complaining of pain from the center of his abdomen to his chest. He rated his pain a 10 out of possible oh, geez. 10. Everybody says 10 out of 10. You know. I, I understand I it, but said he was the worst pain he'd ever experienced. Yeah, I like At least, story. He wants to get to the front of the line. I know. He wants, he wants narcotics. His pain had started at approximately noontime, which is initially associated with shortness of breath. Nurse's assessment was the decedent was stable and did not have a potentially life-threatening emergency and could wait to see a physician. However, the plaintiff's attorney claimed that the blood pressure was 133 over 35. Unusual. That's an unusual blood unusual. pressure. Which was with a widened pulse pressure that could be consistent with aortic dissection. But not diagnostic of. Not diagnostic of. And by the way, it's probably not the aortic dissection. It's the retrograde dissection, which goes into the aortic valve itself, which gives you the pulse pressure difference. Therefore, the plaintiff claimed that the nurse should have summoned a doctor immediately. Well, you know, there is this thing that says chest pain patients are supposed to get an EKG within 10 minutes. Now, we didn't set that standard. That's the American Heart, uh, Heart Association. Right. And it's kind of like, well, is, is chest pain chest pain? How old is this guy? It doesn't say. But I mentioned it in the course today that... The person who ought to be the, out in triage ought to be the smartest person in the department, absolutely the most astute, because there are these needles in the haystack, and not that this frankly was a particular needle. This is, uh, you know, I think this is kind of dis disquieting. But to the extent that the nurses are allowed to stratify when certain patients are seen without the doctor's knowledge of this kind of thing, I think honestly it's risky. Well, that's what triage is all about. You don't need triage if you have empty beds in the back. As you know, we, we uh, at our hospital, we never use triage if there are empty beds in the back. Right. Now, everybody wanted, to, you know, a lot of the nurses say, well, that's not the way we do it at our other hospital. You know, right, right. everybody goes through triage and it was like, well, fine, but that's not the way we're going to do it here. We don't need triage. Triage means sorting out. Well, what are we sorting out? If we, you can bring them straight back. And I think every department should have this policy. Now, you know, some people say, well, we never have open beds. Well, you get other problems other than, uh, you know, not having triage, if that's the case in your department. But anyway, we're dealing with a chest pain patient who's got this widened pulse pressure, which is grossly abnormal. 
and a person who has been relegated to non-immediate care yes. by a poor decision. You know, maybe it was well-intended, but the nurses do not necessarily have the capacity to know what's the significance of a, this widened pulse pressure in a patient with chest pain. You know, to, to many of us, it would like turn on, you know, the bulb would start uh, blinking. But in any case, why don't I read on to save your limited I would appreciate respiratory that. status? Yes. The decedent was placed in a room at 5.15. It arrived at uh, 4.30. So yeah. he's 45 minutes now in his room. His blood pressure in the room was 135 over, over 45. What's well, improving? Yep. Pulse pressure, therefore, was 90. The decedent was first seen by a resident physician approximately an hour and 20 minutes after his arrival in the ED. The plaintiff claimed that the resident doctor... Her attending and the nurse assigned to the patient failed to act properly to diagnose and treat the patient's dissecting aorta based on its widened pulse pressure and family history. Oh, by the way, did you ask? No, of dissection. Correct. We, we do know that dissections run in families. And so that becomes a, a relatively important point here. Defendant said, we were working as fast as we could in light of the concerns over his ability to have the tests he needed. It sounds like gobbledygook to me. Nearly three after hours after his arrival in the ED at 7.20 p.m., the decedent became extremely bradycardic and suffered an asystolic arrest. An emergent CT, oh great, was then obtained, which is like after he's dead, right. uh, which confirmed a type A aortic section. If you recall, type A is the kind that begins at the root of the aorta and goes up towards the aortic knob. Up, up toward the great vessels, correct. Right, and that's one of the reasons when you have a dissection of the carotid artery, the first artery that it hits is the right coronary artery. So you're going to need to get a left-sided stroke. And that's kind of another uncommon, but for the astute physician among you. Correct, might, might correct. Want to be aware. Anyway, at 8.05 p.m., I guess the guy's still alive. Yep. The uh, decedent was brought to the operating room. The surgeon noted that there was a clear-cut dissection of the ascending aorta postoperatively while the surgery to fix the aneurysm was successful. <laughs> the surgery was successful, but the patient died. Right. He uh, suffered a hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Neurologists also indicated that he likely suffered a spinal cord infarct as he had no spontaneous movement of his lower extremities, which is kind of irrelevant to this case. The decedent ultimately died from complications of his brain injury. The settlement was 1.5 million dollars you know again i i don't i think we're this is obviously not california cases here it's a 53 year old guy 1.5 million dollars yeah but lo let me say this rick if someone came into your hospital today i'm a monday morning quarterback yeah doctor. yeah i understand yeah okay you think within two hours or three hours four hours four hours they'd be in the operating room well at our hospital honestly it really depends <laughs> on the on if you're lucky or not. You know, we had like two surgeries that would do vascular kind of thing. It's a community hospital. This is not, we're not at a university place. So it's kind of like, you know, um, they probably, maybe they did the best they could. Well, all I'm saying is in the best of hands with the best of people, if you come in the door and you're hypotensive, if you figure the mean arterial pressure in this patient, the chances are he's going to die. Well, actually, Greg, I think in there, in that case... I would take it back in retrospect because I think you're right. I think this person's die was cast. I think that that is true. And although there may have been some delay in diagnosis, I think it would be very difficult to show, given the fact that this pulse pressure was so abnormal from the, when he hit the door, yep. that maybe there was 
anything they could do about it. And so maybe the settlement of $1.5 million is of, of sorts a compromise. It must have been a compromise because I honestly believe the science would say if you come in with that blood pressure, you're not going to walk out the door. It's not going to happen. Well, you know, also community hospitals don't have, you know, virtually instant access to vascular surgeons. It just doesn't happen. If you come into our hospital, you'd be, you know, you would just be extraordinarily fortunate if Dr. Fred Jose, our, our guy, would be able to take care of you. If you went to Huntington, the big regional hospital around here, I would think that you'd be able to get a vascular surgeon much more easily. So it's like, don't walk into a little community hospital with a with a aortic dissection. That be I would think that would be the most important thing to learn from this case. I'm I'm going to tell you that at major academic centers around the country, you may have even more trouble getting someone in there because they may be tied up in the operating. You think they've got three teams on backup? They got four teams on backup? No, they don't. And and it is a timing question as to whether we're going to be able to save you. I mean, I've I've been involved in this debate for years on cases, and everybody says, oh, we would have taken care of it in X amount of time. All right. I would, it doesn't happen. Right? All right. I would have been, I'm sorry, I wasn't more charitable. Yeah, you were not charitable, not charitable on this. Okay. Mea culpa. All right. Did you know, Greg, that today is May 28th, and we're doing the June issue? Right. But there's, a, there's a significance about May 28th in that, this is the last day to comment on ASIP's proposed policy on the evaluation and management of adults with suspected aortic non-traumatic thoracic aortic dissection. Whoa! Isn't that how nicely that ties into That's the right. case? Yeah. But but it's by the time you get this, the expiration date will have passed, and they're not interested in what you have to say. I did go to their website, however, and looked at the. You know, it's kind of interesting when they do a clinical policy. They don't go from A to Z like the AAPA, American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, position on otitis media. 128 references. It's everything that you possibly would want to know about otitis media. Or don't want to know, right? Exactly. This is, they focus on, in this case, four very specific questions. Scenarios, right. And the first of these four points that they want to make some resolution to is, it says, in adult patients with suspected acute non-traumatic thoracic aortic dissection, are there clinical decision rules that identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of thoracic aortic dissection? So that's their first question. Now, their answer is, don't depend on them, don't depend on them. And they want you and I and others to respond to this based on a literature-focused response, not just your opinion. They want articles that help address that. They have their answer. They're giving us a chance to respond. The other point, number two, in adults, catch this, in adults with suspected acute non-traumatic thoracic aortic dissection, is a negative D-dimer sufficient to identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of thoracic aortic dissection? Well, it could certainly be taken in with the rest of your examination and everything else, I think I think a negative D-dimer would be extremely rare. Exactly. They're saying, but does it identify a group at very low risk? Well, the analysis of D-dimer that I'm aware of basically said that it's going to be 95% sensitive. 5% of patients who have a dissection are going to have a normal D-dimer. That means 95% are not. So it's That's kind of time like, dependent. When did you see them? That 5% may have been seen in the first hour of their dissection. 
that that may be, but generally we're talking about significant bleeding, clot formation, and these kinds of things in the intima of the aorta. So it would be the atypical case that has now not you can't say always, but Rick, we can never ever say always. But what you got to say is there's going to be a reasonable workup spectrum here. Let's say it's a a 28-year-old without family history of dissection who does not have Marfam's disease, who is not hypertensive. Does he look like Abraham Lincoln with his tall hat? He does not look like Abraham Lincoln, and uh, Abraham Lincoln did not die from a dissection, okay? Lead poisoning. Acute lead poisoning, exactly. And, and and we need to kind of keep this thing in mind that at a certain point in time, it's easy to go back and say, I ought to pick that up. But uh, if you had all of those factors I just gave you and a negative D-dimer, I don't know, would you at that point in time subject that person to an arteriogram? Well, I would just, you know, the next question relates to imaging. So in the adult patient who's got the suspected dissection, is the diagnostic accuracy of a CT at least equivalent to transesophageal echocardiogram or magnetic resonance angiogram to exclude the diagnosis of a thoracic aortic dissection? I think the answer to that is CT with contrast is just fine and is absolutely okay. Absolutely. So that's, I think that's an easy one. Number four, in adult patients with suspected dissection, does an abnormal bedside transthoracic echocardiogram establish the diagnosis of thoracic aortic dissection? And I think the answer to that is no, mm-hmm. no. Uh, what do we need this committee for? I think we've got the answers here ourselves. Here, we know? do, as a matter of fact. Number five, in adults with uh, suspected uh, dissection, does targeted heart rate and blood pressure lowering reduce morbidity or mortality? And I think the answer to that is we don't know. That's what everybody does. Two different things, Rick. Is it what most people do? Yeah, And the is. answer is yes, because clearly... If you don't know exactly where the lesion is, and clearly if it's a Stanford type B, one of the only things we have is lower Stanford B, doctor. Those would be the one on the on the descending side, not yes. the ascending yes, side. Exactly. And if we didn't at, at that moment in time, if they were hypertensive, I would probably lower their blood pressure a little bit because I think that's the only yeah, therapy we, we have. We don't know how far to lower it. And there is this theory about, well, okay, we're going to give a beta blocker to decrease the uh, this pulsatile force that is being generated by the heart kind of thing. Right, right. And exactly. that's a tradition, but we don't know that that's particularly factual. Oh, you know, what did Lucille Ball die of? Um, I don't know. A thoracic aortic dissection. Did she? Yes, she did. John Ritter. Yes, he did. And who was the most famous person probably to have surgery for an aortic dissection? Um, Andy Warhol. <laughs> Michael DeBakey. Oh, Michael DeBakey. Yeah. Michael DeBakey at the age of 95, who was the guy who invented the operation for doing the aortic dissection. And the first system to to classify them was the DeBakey 123 system. Well, he at the age of 95, the tender age of 95, over a series of days... Over a series of days, developed pain consistent with aortic dissection. He knew the diagnosis kind of thing. His residency, ultimately, his wife, under the influence of his wife, basically, he, you know, said some doctors check him out, and they all agreed that this was the problem. He refused surgery. And they said, well, what are we going to do here? We, get the, we can do this operation. We can save your life, or we can give it a good shot. And he said, well, you know, you know I'm 95. 
So what they did is they got the ethics committee together and somehow overrode his feeling that he didn't want to have surgery. And they did it anyway. I don't know how they used that. I don't know how they did that. And he was in the hospital for six months recovering from this surgery. Six months. Uh, But he ultimately lived four more years. He died at the age of 99. And I think he was able to see the opening of the DeBakey Center at uh, Parkland or wherever it is down, mm-hmm. down in Texas. All this place in Texas are the same to me, but, you know. But he was probably the most famous person for having this done. There was a whole list of other people that I was going to bring to you of people who have died of this disorder, but I thought Lucille Ball was enough. That's enough. Lucy, you got some splain in Yeah, you. yeah, right. Exactly. All right, Rick. Disruptive physician, yeah. perspective. This is from Academic Radiology. We got the citation in the uh, in the notes there. And you want to talk about... Well, isn't it interesting that it's in academic radiology and not in... Some, well, it's, it, it's not in something like academic thoracic surgery or orthopedic surgery. <laughs> Why? Because they don't consider that behavior disruptive, I guess. Yeah, have you ever seen a disruptive radiologist? No. It's a reportable case. Well, more than that, you can't find them. They're in a dark cave somewhere. But this is very interesting stuff because it it reinforces the fact that court after court in this country has basically held disruptive behavior as a legitimate reason to revoke or refuse renewal of hospital privileges. You can be kicked off the staff and... It's not necessarily what you did, it's how it's perceived. Did you make a hostile work environment? And I think if you say those words over and over again, because that's what the court is going to listen to, is hostile work environment. If you keep chewing on some 19-year-old scrub tech and, and make them feel uncomfortable, unsafe, this, that, or another thing, They're going to find against you on this. Well, I'm going to give you a case here that a physician told a nurse she should get off her ass. I thought they probably deleted the word fat. Yeah, yeah, right. Get off her ass, and that she was a wrench in the works. She was obstructing patient care. This was a. I went actually to the case that uh, this was referenced, but they didn't really do a good job in this journal on this case. So I actually went to the case. Yeah. This was obviously part of a series of incidents. This wasn't that one-time affair. Rick, these things are never single events. You know, assholes are basically assholes, and it will come up again and again and again. I've never seen an action at a hospital on a guy on one thing. Now, I must admit, we I, I agree with you. We had a physician, when they do these cases in the committee, they only refer to physician by their by their numbers. You yeah. know, each doctor had a four-digit number. We heard this number so many times. You know, it's all yeah. that doctor, 486 again. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, exactly. We knew exactly who he was. Anyway, the hospital, after a series of progressive steps, as an example, numerous warnings, multiple suspensions and conditional reappointments still had the involved physician behaving in a disruptive manner. He was kicked off the medical staff and he sued. A three-week trial resulted in the hospital prevailing. On appeal, the decision was upheld. The appeals court also noted that the physician's, quote, harassment and intimidation, this was something else that he was doing, of elderly patients by calling them to disparage their physician skills could adversely affect the health and welfare of patients, and thus the hospital's action qualified as a professional review concern. Rick, stop. 
if you had this guy on your staff, we've all had somebody like this on the staff. Isn't it interesting that his response wasn't to improve, but to sue, to attack, to attack the hospital? We've all had a guy like this in our career, and, and quite frankly, what they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. It's not going aren't, anywhere. Aren't you eating red meat? Anymore? No. Well, what can I say? But I am. But I'm a Neanderthal, and. I can just remember those half dozen people throughout my career who I just wish one of the nurses had shot them. And it was just untenable. It's not going to go anywhere anymore. Well, the, the, this is part of the zero tolerance approach. Exactly. It has to be established by the CEO of the hospital and the chief of the medical staff. Jointly, these two folks need to make it very clear to the medical staff that there will be no tolerance for any of this stuff with regards to any of the employees, all the employee has to say is, you've created a hospital work environment for me, right? and uh, I'm going to the labor board. Uh, and you've created a lot of grief for the hospital. What so, you've created for the hospital is about $250,000, $300,000 in legal fees just dealing with a guy like this. So I, 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 we all see it, and I think that uh, it's interesting. We had a meeting. Um, you know, we had the quarterly staff meeting, annual staff meeting. Everybody's supposed to show up for this luncheon. The CEO gives a little report on how the hospital is doing or not doing. Yeah. And at that meeting, he basically said, you need to know. And he announced this zero tolerance policy with regards because some it was precipitated by some people harassing the staff. We also had a medical, a quarterly medical staff meeting where an attorney was brought in and she spent the entire time talking about sexual harassment because some of the doctors were getting a little cute with the nurses. And so they, as part of their due diligence, they basically had to lay it out in front of the medical staff by an attorney. Here's all the things that you think may be cute, but in fact are not cute and you can't do them uh, anymore. Uh, and it was really part of a process because of these complaints. Well, in any case... Well, the bottom line is the hospital has an affirmative duty, an obligation to act whenever a physician's dis- disruptive conduct puts the running of the hospital in some sort of jeopardy. And, and it doesn't really matter how severe or non-severe you think it is. It's what a third party is going to think Yeah, this, this case went on to say that the hospital uh, has the authority, whether chief of staff, CEO kind of thing, when they may or could adversely affect patient care, when your behavior may or could. So it doesn't have to have had done it. You don't have to wait till they, till they harm somebody or do something really nasty. It's may or could. The potential effect is what, they, is what they're talking about. And to a very great degree, I can't put it, I can't believe that medicine put up with it as long as it did. I, I mean, we all spent time as youngsters in ORs where physicians threw instruments. You know what? That's childish behavior. It doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. Well, I, I certainly hope it doesn't happen anymore. That's just craziness. The potential effect on patient care may not be presumed, but must be shown by the evidence. But a hospital need not wait for a disruptive physician to harm a patient before revoking a medical staff member's privileges. Several courts have upheld that the mere fact that a physician is irascible, you probably 
been held up on being irascible. A couple of times. Just because a physician is irascible does not constitute good cause for termination of a hospital privilege. Just because a physician generally annoys other physicians, nurses, and administrators does not constitute grounds for suspension. The right to criticize constructively, however, is not a right to malign. Well, I, th- I think this depends on how you approach certain people. There's going to be a group of hospital employees, and just think about it, doctors are people in authority and power. There's mm-hmm. going to be somebody who you're berating them does make it a hostile work environment. And I think that's what the feds are looking for, is that environment where these people cannot function, do their jobs without without fear of retribution. Yeah, apparently there is the Federal Health Care Quality Improvement Act of 1986, Six. which kind of spells out a lot, of, a lot of this stuff. The Joint Commission obviously has its nose in this. Yeah, of course. And they've come up with 11 action items. I don't think we need to go into all of these in their gory detail because this is Joint Commission speak. Right. They've got their own language. But I do agree. Educate all team members. Well, this is focused at the hospital, but it implies doctors and nurses and all of the employees need to know what the ground rules are. It's unfair, actually, to you know, go after somebody when they said, oh, yeah, I didn't know that kind of thing. So you got to lay out the ground rules. Yeah. By the way, how could they not know that? You mean their mother didn't give them well, good manners this is, this as a child? This is a sliding, slippery slope here. When, do, when does it cross the line kind of thing? Yep. All right. So, but here's the important thing. Physicians can and have a right and a duty to pass on criticism, but constructive criticism is not the same as maligning individuals. And I think it's how it's done. If a physician in the ER has a problem with someone of the nursing staff, he needs to talk to the head nurse and that nurse privately. Oh, yeah, there's the chain of command. There is a chain of command, and there is a reasonable way of passing on the fact you don't like certain behaviors. That's perfectly acceptable. It's when it's done in a sort of a terrorist manner that uh, that you're going to have real trouble. Well, the Joint Commission recommendations also deal with what happens when one physician acts up and berates a nurse in front of a patient because the patient basically then has uh, some issues that need to be resolved. I mean, this right. you just can't walk away from this and say, well, it's a doctor-nurse issue. Uh, when, in fact, there's some credibility issues that may have been involved in in the patient's care. Okay, they talk about zero tolerance, medical staff policies regarding intimidating and or disruptive behaviors should be complemented and supported by the policies that are presented present in organization for non-staff physicians. Okay, so if you come on and you're not on staff, but you're just coming into doing consult, you need right. to play by the same rules. Reducing fear of intimidation or retribution and protecting those who report or cooperate in the investigation of intimidating, disruptive, and other unprofessional behavior. This is a, an issue because some pe- people are clearly intimidated about talking about the fact that Dr. So-and-so patted me on the butt twice now. Yes, so non-retaliation clauses should be included in all policy statements that address disruptive behaviors. Responding to patients and or their families, here you go, who were involved in or witness intimidating or disruptive behaviors. The response should include hearing and empathizing with their concerns, thanking them for sharing their concerns, and apologizing. Uh, the next is how and when to begin disciplinary actions. We talked and about those. This is key. To all emergency department directors listening to this, It's not what you do eventually. It's the steps you go through. This is my advice. 
if you're counseling a doc on disruptive behavior, you keep the paper trail clean and neat. If there's going to be a serious discussion about a corrective action plan, have a third party of some of some kind be involved in this as well, because then it becomes a he, sh- he said, she said, or they didn't really tell me that sort of thing. Um, I've seen those kinds of situations go badly for the hospital when they didn't follow their own rules and guidelines. Although I think you don't, you don't want to trigger the very formal process prematurely. Two of these articles we looked at basically said, why don't you start out with what they call a cup of coffee conversation. The curbside. This is kind of thing yes. when say, Frank, let, let's have a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, I got to tell you that I've been getting a little feedback about uh, the fact that you've been patting the nurses on the butt more than uh, appropriate. And um, I think that you really need to stop that because it, it could be a problem. And this is very informal. It's it's kind of like I'm giving you fair warning right. kind of thing. I'm not. We're not going to formalize this just right now. And, and but a word to the wise. People should understand we all work together. We had an action brought against a physician because our doctor was dating the head nurse. Well, lo and behold, a new nurse comes on the staff. He stops seeing this head nurse, starts seeing the new nurse, and they're cutesy at work. So who brings the action? this scorned first nurse you know whenever i've seen this happen i've i've never seen it successfully resolved so that both party could stay at the in the department somebody's got to go Mm -hmm. because the tensions get so bitter and so ugly that it uh it can really be very difficult to deal with these things Greg, we have a few minutes left. I want to just hit the highlights of another article in the same issue of Academic Radiology. It's called The Cost of Disruptive and Unprofessional Behaviors in Healthcare. And they point out that 20% of the general population in the U.S. suffers from diagnosable mental illness each year. Oh, I, I think that's, that's probably true. During the course of their careers, approximately 10 to 12% of physicians will develop a substance abuse disorder. That's a similar percentage to the general population, so we are no better or no worse in this regard. Mm-hmm. The major drivers of costs in association with their disruptive behavior are staff turnover, just like you mentioned. We didn't really think about uh, that as a cost, but staff turnover is a cost. Absolutely. The likelihood of medical error when some disruptive doctor, you know, these the stories that they uh, outline in these papers are extraordinary, and you could certainly see how a medical error could occur. And preventable procedural complications, which are estimated to cost about $1 million per year in a 400-bed hospital. That does not include the cost of readmissions, ED visits, litigation, or settlement costs, or other complications such as infection or falls. Approximately 12% of staff members leave hospitals due to disruptive behavior. And as I said, if you're in the same department and you you have to continue to work with each other, it's not going to go well. Fortunately, in big hospitals, you can move people around. But if it's in the same emergency department, beware, beware, because tensions will boil over. Rick, there was a survey in 2011 uh, on disruptive behavior. And this was done with physicians. 70% of the survey reported a disruptive behavior occurring at least once a month in the hospital. 
And these are doctors talking about other doctors, 70% of them. This is 840 doctors, too. Yeah, yeah. This is not a small study. And and the same survey reported that 10% of physicians uh, said that there was disruptive behavior not further defined daily in in, uh, their work environment. Uh, 50% reported patients uh, changing physicians or leaving practices due to disruptive behaviors. A quarter admitted in engaging in disruptive behavior themselves. Approximately 7% of medication errors are attributable to dysfunctional physician behavior, accounting for a cost of $480,000 in a 400-bed hospital in a year. Yep, Rick, whenever I hear those numbers... All right, not uh, 480, uh, maybe 475. Uh, Something like that. not exact science at all. They did have one thing good in this survey, and that what are the disruptive behaviors that ought to be clues... To the to if you're the boss, clues. clues. If you're the boss guy, physician, what tips you off before an angry nurse comes to you that there's something going on? So let's just go down this list. Yeah, angry outbursts. Okay. Yeah. Throwing, not tossing. Throwing. Throwing. Okay. Demeaning, physical violence, sexual harassment, racial or ethnic dro- jokes, and that's you know that's not that infrequent to be candid. No. Alcohol or drug abuse, and as you have pointed out multiple times in the past, being chronically late, that's a disruptive behavior. Chronically late means one of three things. Drugs, they're going through a divorce, or they're, they, they've got depression. Uh, and whenever I see a doc who consistently shows up late, there's something psychologically wrong with what's happening. Because you and I both know, if a doc's there 15 minutes early, even if he's the dumbest doctor in the whole world, he's our guy. Yeah. If he's there 15 minutes late, I don't care if he's Osler. He's, he, he's, he's toast. Up. He's messing up. The last five, ignoring pages and calls, ignoring questions, warning, and suggestions, derogatory comments, refusal to follow policy, and body language. Like they specifically say, like, eye rolling. Oh, the, eye, eye, the, the famous eye, eye rolling. The famous eye rolling. Greg? Now, I know you're visiting and uh, that your notes are at the hospital, So that I mean at the uh, conference. And so we're going to have to do wine of the month n- next I, time. I can do one right off the top. You're going to make one up? Well, I'm not making <laughs> one up. But I did have California whites, have, as, as far as I'm concerned, have never been quite as strong as their reds. I mean, the California reds now, as we've pointed out multiple times, compete with the best in the world. In fact, I think last time we told about all the crazy prices we're now getting out of China, more than the French are getting out of China. But there is one called Matera. There's a, a, a Napa Valley. How do you spell that? M-A-T-T-E-R-A. And it is a reasonably priced white, more in the Riesling family. You can get this for about $20, $21 a bottle. Uh, it is very well thought of by Parker, and you know what? It meets our criteria. You can buy it for under fifty bucks, and, no, and, and the second criteria is: is it a Costco? <laughs> and that is the most. Important you know what? Actually, <laughs> I have no idea whether they got it at Costco. All right, we're about to reintubate Dr. Henry, who's uh, basically got a jag going on right now as his bronchi uh, close over. Uh, Greg, it's been charming. Uh, I appreciate your special effort this month. That is June. Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.